Welcome back to the PVN Podcast. This week's episode is kindly brought to you by our friends at Newzest. Today, we're highlighting the amazing people who use the Newzest product, such as the professional footballer, Lauren Barnes, who joins me in the studio today. Hey, Lauren, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for joining us. Protein does occur in all plants in varying qualities and quantities, but talk us through a little bit about like why you use a product like Newzest with regards to your nutrition goals. Absolutely. It's actually, this is an interesting question for me because I um, am really into sustainability and this connects both my passions. So sport and sustainability, Newzest uses the cleanest products in the cleanest ways as well. That was a big draw for me. But in terms of having protein that have very little ingredients is something that's also really important to me. And Newzest is really good at that. It tastes great and I'm not even being biased. There's a lot of plant proteins out there with either texture or taste. And Newzest has always been super smooth. They have a variety of flavors too that I love and you can mix them in all different things. But yeah, I think... For a plant-based athlete, it is important to be conscious of how much protein that we're taking in and making sure that we're getting enough. I use mine mostly for recovery, which I think is huge. So right after a workout or a game, I immediately have New Zest back into my system, whether it's in a shake or I love cooking with New Zest. They've got like an all-natural one that you can put in pretty much anything and not have the taste of protein in it. Um, so yeah, I love it for those reasons. I've been with Newzest now for about seven years. When Jonathan first came up to Seattle, we connected, and he is literally like why I love Newzest. He's an incredible guy. He really wants Newzest to portray that as well. The community is incredible, and it just makes you fall in love with the product even more because you know that the people behind it, what they're putting into it, is all very clean and natural, and they just want to be the best product out there. And for athletes, it's an easy choice. You, you want to put whatever is going to be in your body to be the highest quality, to be organic. And, and at the end of the day, they're also making it in a sustainable way, which is now not hurting the planet either. And for me, that is really important in products that I use. And Newzest like, literally checks all the boxes for me. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast, Lauren. Really great to hear your story. And yeah, we'll catch you again next time. Thank you so much for having us. And like I said, representing the women in Newsus is incredible for me. And I'm just happy to be able to share my story. If you love the sound of Newsus, please do check out newsus.us forward slash PBN20 to get 20% off your first order. And, and we see time and time again, farms being investigated, you know, red tractor approved farms, because most of them are in this country. We see time and time again, that they're investigated and time and time again, not only are they breaching red tractor standards, they're breaching legal standards. And of course, what they're doing is, is incredibly immoral to begin with. And yet we're still sold this idea that these are one bad farm, you know, it's one bad apple. But at a certain point, we have to recognize that it's not the apples that are rotten, it's the whole tree. Hi everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm super excited to be joined today by none other than Ed Winters, aka Earthling Ed. Ed is a vegan educator whose content boasts over 200 million views, and he has hosted numerous viral speeches, debates, and videos engaging in dialogue with non-vegans and skeptics. Ed has delivered speeches at numerous schools, universities, and major companies, including Google, and he's engaged audiences all around the world. As an activist, vegan educator, and most recently a published author, he is a firm advocate for animals and the vegan lifestyle. Ed's advocacy centers around compassion, empathy, and open communication. 
In 2016, he funded a grassroots animal rights organization called Surge. Two years later, he launched Unity Diner, a non-profit vegan restaurant in London, all the proceeds from which go to helping animals. The culmination of that work is his lifelong passion project, Surge Sanctuary, which houses rescued animals on a vast 18-acre property. Most recently, Ed has published his first book, This is Vegan Propaganda and Other Lies the Meat Industry Tells You, which presents an indisputable case for veganism. This is a book that is much for non-vegans as it is for those who already lead a vegan lifestyle, empowering them to talk more confidently about veganism with the non-vegans in their life. The book explores the effects of animal farming across the globe and how they are rooted in a number of factors that have created our current system. I'm delighted to welcome Ed and find out more about the inspiration behind this book and everything that he's been up to with his work recently. I'm Robbie Lockie and this is the PBN Podcast. Hello Ed and welcome back to the podcast. Hello Robbie, it's a pleasure to be back. Every animal who we farm is eventually killed in a slaughterhouse. Does that constitute cruelty in your eyes or not? That definitely constitutes cruelty. <laughs> I'm going vegan. We haven't seen each other for a while. It's been a minute, hasn't yeah. it? And you've been a very busy man. As have you, but <laughs> yes, we, we, do, we do our best, don't we? Mm, absolutely. So for those who do want to hear Ed's backstory, and if you haven't heard already, please rewind to episode 43 on the PBN podcast, where you can hear more about how Ed got into veganism and all the things that led him to this lifestyle. Ed and I have actually known each other for many years. We met, I think, would we said 2016? About 2016, I think. Yeah. And we crossed paths many times with lots of different projects and events and campaigning and all kinds of different things and we've got lots of mutual friends and being part of the the london vegan community for quite a while which has changed a lot hasn't it certainly certainly so yeah. and as i was we were joking earlier we're now both professional vegans aren't we certainly seems that way doesn't <laughs> which, it yeah which i could never have imagined 10 years ago no i don't think it was really a thing you know the stuff that we are privileged enough to be able to do now mm. definitely so let's get into it three primary life forces exist on this planet nature animals and humankind we are the earthlings the documentary Earthlings was a huge catalyst in your shift in consciousness. In your opinion, how important is the role of film, both short and long, in the awakening of humanity, do you think? I mean, I think it's essential. You know, for me, it, as you quite rightly said, the documentary Earthlings was the catalyst for me, opening my eyes to the true horrors of what we do to animals and making that change to veganism. So we can't understate, I think, the, or we can't overstate, sorry, the the impact that film has. And I think what's really powerful now is hopefully there'll be a shift from, you know, purely documentary work to you know, almost fiction films, but with a vegan message. I mean, Okja is a great example. So as well as just having documentaries that are, you know, outlining the true horrors of animal farming and the impact it has to our health, to, to the environment, of course, I think there's going to be a shift towards fiction films that are normalizing the representation of vegans and also normalizing that vegan message as well, which I'm particularly excited for, hopefully in the near future. This beautiful and special little creature will be a revolution in the livestock industry. Our super pigs will not only be big and beautiful, they will also leave a minimal footprint on the environment, consume less feed, and produce less excretions. And most importantly, 
They need to taste fucking good. Miranda rescued Okja and bring her back to you. Ten years in planning, on the cusp of a product that will feed millions. And what happens? That farmer girl is going to destroy us. You should know the situation is not good. Each night before you go to bed. What are some of the films that really, other than Earthlings, kind of take your breath away or really kind of shifted your view over the years? I remember, well, Seaspiracy was a, was a huge one. And Seaspiracy, I think, reminded me to not neglect fishing in my activism, because even as vegan advocates, we can often overlook fish, the suffering they endure and, and the environmental consequence of, of the fishing industry. So that gave me a wake up call to say, hey, you know, Ed, make sure that you're not leaving out these often forgotten victims and there's trillions of them. My name is Ali. I've been fascinated with the ocean for as long as I can remember. But this romantic vision that I always had of the ocean completely changed. I was forced to confront a side of the story I never knew, a story of just how huge our impact on the seas had become. Where are the big environment groups? They are deliberately not engaging with the most important issue of all. Can you turn off the cameras? Thanks. Would you say there's any safety concerns for me making this film? And I think Fox Over Knives was a big one for me. When I first went vegan, there wasn't as much content as there is now, but Fox Over Knives, I remember watching that and just being blown away, thinking, my goodness, you know, this is a, a huge, huge problem to our interpersonal lives as well that we don't often realize. And that was a, a huge wake-up call. This could be the first generation of children in the United States that lives less than its parents. I got two pills I take for my diabetes, then I got one for cholesterol, high blood pressure, and then I take Bieta, which is an injectable. I'm getting really shaky and I'm sick and I'm fatigued, and that's when they diagnosed me with hypertension and diabetes. Obesity, diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure cost this country more than $120 billion each year. People are saying, you're crazy. You're a cancer patient. You should be resting. Doctors told me this. When I had the second heart attack, the doctor said, I should prepare for death. Heart disease is an absolutely toothless paper tiger that need never, ever exist. People who were raised in Japan, the Philippines, Korea, China, never had heart disease, prostate cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis. This is the atlas of cancer mortality in China. Virtually, the Western diet was non-existent. They had no animal products. They had no dairy, no meat. We learned that we could turn on and turn off cancer growth just by adjusting the level of intake of that protein. I knew at that point what caused most diseases. Our national authorities are simply excluding this concept in order to protect the status quo. With the Western diet, there are going to be half a million people in this country this year who will have to have the front half of their body divided, their heart exposed. Some people would call that extreme. I know of nothing else in medicine that can come close to what a plant-based diet can do. 
If you go through life thinking that what happens to you from a health perspective is based on your genes, you're a helpless victim. I've reversed the diabetes. The diabetes is not coming back. I just can't understand what it's done to change my life. Diet is so much more important than anybody ever thought. To me, the answer is so simple, it's criminal. And it's just people starting to take responsibility for their health and starting to eat more plant-based foods. It's that simple. Pork Seven Knives is one of the first films I watched shortly after Earthlings as well. I just got a copy, not copy, I just got a subscription to Netflix. And I was blown away by all the knowledge that I absorbed in that film. I had no idea of the impact food had, that had on our lives, on our health and chronic disease as well. Yeah. Um, I knew that you know humans have always had a problem with chronic disease, but I never realized just how bad it was when it came to eating animals and the effects it has um, on our bodies. What always strikes me as strange is that when people see these parts of animals, they say that it puts them off their food. When people see graphic content like this, they often say to me, I don't want to see that, it'll put me off my food. Why? Why would seeing the process of how meat and animal products turn up on your plate put you off eating them? If you were naturally meant to eat animals, not only would you be able to watch them being killed, you'd be able to kill them yourself, yet so many of us feel the opposite of hunger when we see animals being killed. We feel repulsed, we feel angry, we feel sad, we feel frustrated, we don't understand why they're suffering so much. If we were natural animal eaters, this wouldn't phase us at all, yet that's one of the most common things that people say to me. I don't want to watch the documentary because it'll put me off my food. Why is this? Your 30-minute talk to the British University students went viral in 2018 and has 35 million views across Facebook and YouTube. You've given multiple guest lectures at Harvard University and a TED talk amassing a couple of million views as well. When did you realize that your change in perspective had such an impact on people's lives? And do you ever feel the pressure of responsibility to be doing more and more and more? Oh, certainly. I mean, when we realize the scope of what we're up against, it becomes really easy to feel shame and guilt around the prospect of not pushing yourself to do more and more because every single second these problems are intensifying. They're not going away. They're getting worse globally. Even as veganism is growing, the actual issue of animal farming is, is also growing globally speaking. So it's hard to sometimes find the, I suppose, the reasoning to take that that time. So I do, I do find that that is a pressure that can be applied, but you know, applied by me more than anything else. And for, I guess with the public speaking, I think people really resonate to personal stories. You know, as a species, we love connecting with each other through stories, through anecdotes, through, I suppose, forms of communication that touch us in ways that is emotional, logical, rational, that really touches us in, in our hearts when it comes to how we feel about issues. And I think what we find inspiring, hopefully, is when people can connect with us in a way that we've never really realized within ourselves. So when people say things that, have this kind of aha moment, not because of their journey, but because how their journey or how what they're saying relates to our personal and inner feelings about these subjects. And that's why I like public speaking and why I like having you know in-person conversations, even debates with people, is because you can connect with people in a way that we're not used to as humans. You know, we, we have our own lives and we, we have our, you know, kind of friendship groups and our social circles, but being able to connect with just total strangers and seeing people's reactions and seeing how people respond to what's happening, I think is, it fills me with a lot of optimism and a lot of hope and public speaking is a big part of that for me, which I, I always have really enjoyed. Have you always been so good at public speaking? And if you haven't, how did you learn? I definitely haven't always been good. Remember when I was at college and stuff, I do class presentations and I always quite enjoyed them. So I've always enjoyed having that. 
that element of having space to express myself and be able to vocalize how I feel about things. And I remember the first vegan talk I did was a, a you know a vegan festival in Lincoln. And there was a couple of dozen people in the crowd and I had all my notes printed out and my bullet points and they were there on the table. So I'd wander over and look at it. And I remember feeling very nervous. And so it's definitely a work in progress. And the more you do it, the more confident you get. And even now, the more I do it, I, I find myself feeling more and more confident because it's a process of trial and error. And sometimes maybe I'll say something or express myself in a way and it doesn't work out the way I want to or works out really well. And, you know, you're always just trying to shift your approach and shift the way that you convey the message based on how people respond. And it's definitely a process of trial and error. Yeah. One of the, the founders of TED said that as a speaker, your role is as a speaker is quite a magical thing because to be successful at public speaking is to take complex ideas that are really resident within your own mind and brain and turn them into words, hurl them across the room, and then hope that the people on the other side can put them all together and connect with you. Right. And you talked about setting, telling personal stories. Those techniques and those styles, is that something you learned at school or is that something that you've really practiced over the years? Have you done courses? What, has, you know, what have been some of the ways in which you've really honed that craft? I think practicing more than anything. It wasn't something I was necessarily taught. I remember being young, I would like to, I did little theater productions, you know, when I was in like primary school, so very young. So I've always kind of had, I suppose, confidence in conversing with people and, and being in an environment where people are giving me attention. I've always found relative confidence in that, but it has definitely been practice. I went through a period of watching a lot of TED videos, um, watching a lot of YouTube videos about communication, about presentation, oration. So it was just a process of education for me. And, and again, that practice thing is so important, you know, and just putting myself in situations that were challenging and pushing myself to, to do talks in these environments and just building up confidence little by little. Hi, Aideen. My name's Ed. It's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. I have a banner and it says, why aren't you vegan yet? So why aren't you vegan yet? I just enjoy trying a variety of food and I feel like being vegan would take away a large variety and a lot, a lot of options for me. Yeah. Does the enjoyment of uh, a food justify what happens to produce the food? Definitely not. I don't think the practices in America are definitely like out of pocket, 100%. Uh, I'm not. A, I'm not pro any of that. Um, I'm just, if the animals were taken care of. Can you describe what that would be? Obviously, yeah. obviously, it's it's um, a not particularly uh, unique thing to be against factory farming. I think most people yeah, are because it definitely. is objectively exactly. really horrible. But what about like you, you said, good practices or like maybe taken yeah, care yeah. of well? What would that look like? I would say like if animals were raised with care. I mean, like the factory farming is obviously terrible. So if, I would say if like animals were raised with care, uh, they have the like right space to live and everything. They live out their lives and then, you know. Uh, they get consumed one day, but that's just how like the world works, right? You know, not the world, but like uh, like the circle of life. What does the circle of life mean? Because I guess the circle of life is really that, you know, we're born and we die. That's the circle, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But the circle of life and the fact that death is inevitable doesn't necessarily, I don't believe anyway, provide justification for us to take life arbitrarily or, or without a necessity. Did you agree with well, that? The necessity is to feed human beings, right? But does it have to be done with animal products? For you and I, because obviously the question is why I That's true, here? that's true. I feel like it's like a opinion thing. I, I feel like for some people, like originally, like human beings were hunter-gatherers, right? They survived off of consuming other animals. So in that sense, I feel like 
it is justified if we were to have good practices and go about it the, the proper way. Um, so obviously with hunter-gatherers that was uh, a huge part of our history yeah. and that was important because eating the animals at that time allowed us to survive and allowed us to continue until we are where we are today but it was a necessity back then and this is the thing about wild animals other animals do hurt, uh, do hunt and eat other animals but they do so because they have to you know a lion eats a gazelle because well they have to but also they don't have the moral agency that we have they don't have the ability to be able to rationalize the impact of their choices we shouldn't hold our ourselves to the same standard as wild animals. Is that something you would agree with or disagree with? I would agree with that. I would agree with that. But at the same time, human beings are more intelligent for a reason, right? That's just how it works. Like more intelligent species consume other lower intelligent species. Like that works within animals, it works within us. We're just another form of animals. Sure. But is that not equal might makes right? Because we can, therefore we are allowed to. Do you think that's true? I feel like that's getting into a little bit of like political thinking. Right? Well, I guess because you're saying that the reason it's okay for us to, to harm other animals and then consume them is because we are intellectually more dominant yeah. and because we are physically more dominant. But that subscribes to the idea that might makes right. The idea that because we can do something, we're therefore justified to. But do you think that, in, so that's one question, does might make right, but also does intelligence define worth of life or not define worth of life, but should someone be allowed to be harmed by someone else simply because the person and harming them is more intelligent than they are. Man, you're right, bro. <laughs> no, that's true. I agree with that. I don't know. Honestly, the only reason I still eat meat is because it tastes good. And I, I'm not against, like, veganism. I am totally supporting. Uh, I don't even consume red meat anymore. It's just, like, uh, poultry and that kind of stuff. Uh, even I know, like, the factory farming is, like, it, it's, oh, it's, it's a shit show. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you consume red meat, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, it's, like, carcinogenic. It's, like, it's I, I heard it's bad for you. <laughs> yeah. Is it bad for the animals as well? The animals who were killed for it? A bit of a strange I mean, question. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they died. <laughs> it must be such a great feeling to be able to stand on a stage and share something that you care about so deeply and have people connect with you and, and sort of resonate with what you're saying. Obviously, on the other side of that is also people that don't like what you're saying and there are many on there there are many people out there who don't like what we say when it comes to veganism animals animal rights farming sheep farmers are hitting back at vegans veganuary the campaign to get people to go vegan for one month reckon that by the end of this month half a million people around the world will have tried moving to a plant-based diet sheep farmers say the veganuary campaign is misleading and misguided so let's bring together a vegan and a sheep farmer. Phil Stocker is a sheep farmer and chief executive of the National Sheep Association, which represents the industry. And Ed Winters is an animal rights activist, also known as Earthling Ed, who wants to see a vegan world, don't you? Yes, Yes. I do. Okay. Good morning, both of you. Thank you for talking to each other. Uh, Phil, tell Ed what you say is misleading about Veganuary. Okay, so I think it is within everyone's right to uh, choose the sort of diet that they uh, should eat. Uh, I just think that a lot of the facts and the, the, um, the statistics that have been spread around are, are misleading. I don't take into account the fact that our sheep are being produced in a very natural way. Uh, they're producing a, 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 a very nutritious product. And I would argue that they're actually um, contributing to a positive environment rather than damaging uh, the, the planet. You know, So a lot of the stats and the messages that are going out are simply misleading and don't reflect the way that sheep farming is taking place here in the UK. Before you respond, what's the, one, what's the thing that's the most misleading in your view? Be specific if you would. I think it's that, um, that eating meat is damaging to people's health and yet we know that as part of a balanced diet it's a very uh, healthy um, it's a very healthy way to keep yourself in good order.
I think there's, there's two things to consider. There's is the environmental point that you, you kind of first put forward. And there were two studies released last year. The first was the most comprehensive study that ever looked at the relationship between farming and the environment. Um, it looked at uh, 119 countries and 40,000 farms, and it revealed that the vegan diet or a vegan lifestyle is the single biggest way that we can live that reduces our impact. The second study was the most comprehensive study ever conducted between food and the environment. And it said that in this country, in the UK, not America, but in the UK, we have to reduce our pork our beef and our lamb consumption by 90% to avoid meeting that two degrees Celsius threshold rise, that'll be mm. catastrophic. So actually when we look at the science that's behind these, these issues that we're talking about, it's very much stacked in favor of a vegan lifestyle. You know, over the years, you've sat down with many people face to face in these sort of table over table discussions you've been doing a lot lately in the US. What are some of the patterns or behaviors or sort of things that you've experienced can you share any anecdotes from from over the years that, that really stand out for you? I think what's rewarding about those conversations is I quickly realized that people use the same arguments. Whether I'm in the UK, you know, Germany, Switzerland, America, Canada, wherever I've been and had these conversations, people don't have new things to tell me. You know, really, by and large, everyone says the same things, you know. It's a food chain, it's a personal choice, I like how meat tastes. And that fills me with a lot of confidence because I recognize that most people are just unconscious. We're engaged in some sort of autopilot where we're doing this thing unconsciously and we don't really have any excuses. We're just regurgitating the excuses that we've seen people use online. And we've never really critically reflected on the veracity of those excuses. So that's definitely filled me with a lot of confidence. But at the same time, there are certain things that can happen that make you think, wow, you know, humans, we've got a lot of work to do, um, especially not to necessarily pick on America, but I find that some of the crazier conversations I have tend to be in the US. I'm mm -hmm. sure there's a... You a, mean the strange, the crazy beliefs that people have? Definitely. Mm. There's a lot more kind of a political opinion there mm. about veganism. I think it's a little bit more politically divisive there. I think that there's a religious argument there that we don't necessarily find in more secular areas of the world, like here in the UK. And I remember, well, there was a conversation I had just recently, and this kind of puts it into context about the... Uh, the strangeness of some arguments. It was at Texas A&M, which is a big agricultural university. I think it's the biggest university in all of the US. It's in the heartlands of Texas. And so I kind of gone with a little bit of trepidation, kind of an awareness that maybe people wouldn't respond that well. But to be fair, everyone responded really well. But this one guy had a very unusual argument. And what it boiled down to was, he said that eating meat gives us bloodlust. I said, bloodlust? Surely that sounds like a negative thing. Why would you want that? And he was like, well, we need a little bit of bloodlust so that we can be competitive and so that we can, you know, make sure that we don't lose our standing as humans. Yeah. And then it, it kind of, we kept going a little bit further and further. And he said to me, no offense, no disrespect. And I said, no, that's fine. Whatever you want to say, just say it. And he said, if the US went vegan, we would become weak. And then we would be more vulnerable to our enemies like China. And I was like, so just to clarify, the reason that we should eat meat in America is because if we don't, America will be overrun by communist invasion. And he was like, yeah, pretty much. And I was like, that is potentially the strangest argument I've ever heard in my life, right? So there is a, a definitely a strangeness to some people's mm. reasoning. That's remarkable, isn't it? How yeah. people's beliefs are so entwined. And that's one of the interesting things about communication. I often talk on this podcast about the, the mechanism in which people hold beliefs. And Dr. Melanie Joy talks a lot about it, but you know, the, the human brain is actually built 
to protect core beliefs. And actually when we attack in quotes core beliefs in particular ways, whether it's aggressively or with our aggressive body language, the human brain um, actually implements a mechanism to actually protect us. Uh, neuropinephrine, which is a neurotransmitter, actually increases in the brains of people that feel threatened. And neuropinephrine can, can be associated with narrow-mindedness and kind of really shutting off from anything new. Right. Um, but when people feel safe and confident about a relationship or a conversation, or they feel that you're not a threat, neuropinephrine levels actually drop. Wow. So there's an interesting biochemical reaction that goes on between two people. And I genuinely believe when you in, in, interact with people in those settings, when you're sitting at a table, you in the book you talk about neutral body language, and you talk about how we should be conscious of how we speak and the words that we use, because ultimately what we're doing is when we commu communicate with another person, we are using our words, but we're also using our bodies. Some 80% of our communication is physical, it's nonverbal. And so isn't it remarkable that as we grow as people and as we grow as vegan advocates, we can really hone those tactics. Would you say, though, some people might say we're manipulating people, that we're using psychology to sort of evade people's belief systems? And Because I think some people do see us as forcing our beliefs on other people. What do you say to people who say that? Well, I think vegans can't force anyone to do anything. You know, we have conversations with people, mm -hmm. but what that person does afterwards with what they've learned from that conversation or how they felt from that conversation is entirely up to them. You know, I can't follow the people around and make them buy tofu in, right. in supermarkets. So this notion of forcing beliefs is an interesting one. And I don't think it's manipulative to use, to be intimately aware of how psychology works and how language and body language is important in, in conveying a message. Because what it allows us to do, if we recognize how there's these certain triggers, these certain things that can happen as a result of us communicating in a negative way, by, by understanding that and then diffusing that by conversing in a positive way, we're creating an open landscape through which these ideas can be objectively discussed. And I think what happens a lot of the time with political issues, moral issues, is there's a lot of disingenuous conversation, a lot of straw manning, a lot of tactics that are used to try and make someone seem extreme or militant or dogmatic, or just to try and ignore the overall messaging. But actually understanding how we can have productive conversations means that the arguments and the debates become solely about the issues and not the, the stereotypes that come along with them or the caricaturing that we can often apply to people who have different views to us. So I think actually it just levels the playing field to the point where we can actually openly and honestly discuss how we truly think as individuals mm. about these really important issues. Mm. Absolutely. And as the Buddha says, and I always say this on this podcast, we've got two ears and one mouth because we should listen twice as much as we speak. Wow. Nice. Because most of the time people in a conversation, in a dialogue or discord are so, as you say, straw manning and they're so busy thinking about what to say next rather than actually actively listening to what the person has to say because ultimately a conversation between two people is not shouldn't be just about trying to win it's about trying to understand each other find a common ground and i found in my advocacy and in my conversations with people that and i've had similar experiences to you and i was you know you mentioned in i think your podcast with nimai about two South African guys, um, how you interacted with it. Was it in Trafalgar Square? Yeah, it was, yeah. I also interacted with two South African guys in Trafalgar Square and had a very bad experience. I wonder if it was the same guys. Maybe so, yeah. But, you know, that experience really made me think about how I carry myself and, and do I want to be right or do I want to be effective? You know? What a great, great, great way of phrasing it. It's so true. We can be justified in the things that we're saying, but the things that we're saying might not be effective in helping people understand those, you know, what we're trying to convey. So you're absolutely right. It, it is also this 
there's all these extra considerations that we need to apply to these conversations. And for me, there's always the element of accountability of, of me saying to myself, who am I doing this for? You know, if I'm doing it for myself, to, for my own gratification, then sure, you know, laying into someone and telling them exactly why what they're doing is so wrong and immoral and, you know, using very, I suppose, judgmental language made may me feel you know, gratified as an individual. But if I'm there to represent the animals, then I need to do what's most effective for them. And having those open conversations and being honest and listening, because how can we debate someone if we don't understand their point of view? So I, I absolutely agree that listening is such a fundamental part of conversation, especially with the table debates, because I'm inviting someone to come and tell me their opinion. So the prerogative is on me to listen by the virtue of me inviting them to come and tell me their opinions. So if they sit down, I just tell them all my views and all my opinions, but that's not the point of the debate and the point of the table. I'd like to turn on to the topic of language and the words that we use and the power that words actually contain. Words are not just symbols on a page. They contain a lot of meaning and nuance as well. And some vegans or some advocates might use words like rape or murder or rapist or murderer. And there's a lot of nuance in the way these words are used, the context in which they're used. Has your views uh, in the way that we use these words to describe what happens to animals changed over the years? Or do you remain resolute, as some do, that killing animals is murder and that the dairy industry, you know, is a, is a sort of, you know, legalized rape system? Do you have any sort of thoughts on, on the way we use these words in the movement? Well, I think we can use words in different scenarios. And I think that there's a difference between a word being true or, you know, being correctly applied to a situation and us finding justification to use it. So, you know, I think putting a pig in a gas chamber is murder. You know, I think that that is what it is. It's, you know, forcefully and unnecessarily taking the life of someone else mm -hmm. against their will. That, that to me is murder, but I'm not gonna use that necessarily that word in, in a conversation because I don't need to convince the other person I'm speaking to that this word murder is, is what it is. I just need to convince them that doing this is wrong. So for me, it's more about like getting people to understand the broader point. And when I first went vegan, I'd have probably thought that some of the words that we can use as vegans were wrong and were extreme and were militant to use because I was still understanding the concept. I was still coming to grips with everything that we do and, and, and my personal feelings about it. But I'd just gone vegan because I knew that what we were doing was something that, that we shouldn't be doing. So I, I'm less concerned about the words that we apply in terms of their, I, I suppose, objectivity, but more about how these words will be perceived. And if I'm having a conversation with someone and I use a word which then dominates the conversation and whether or not that word should be used, and we're kind of speaking past each other. Because what's important to me is them acknowledging that this is something that should be, we shouldn't be partaking in. And, you know, slaughter and words like this are very emotive words as well. And people can't argue with those in the same way that they can with some of the more emotive, even more emotive words that we can use. So language is very important. And it's not betraying our views, it's not betraying our feelings, it's not betraying the animals to use language that we know will fulfill productive dialogue. It's actually the opposite. Because like I said, we don't want to get bogged down in theorizing the legitimacy of certain words and open up the dictionary to see if it you know, matches correctly. It's about conveying the basic principles, which is that morally speaking, what we do to animals is wrong. And regardless of the labels or words we use to that, you know, to apply to what we do to animals, that's just an objective fact that needs to be addressed. Absolutely. And I think most people agree that causing unnecessary suffering to animals or any suffering to animals is is intrinsically wrong. And when you ask most people that, 99% of people will say, absolutely, it's wrong. A shift in perspective or what I often like to call is, of, is an unlocking of realization seems to be an essential part of people awakening to the suffering of animals. Why do you think some people make this connection overnight and other people seem to take years and years 
for it to get through to them, despite seeing earthlings, despite being exposed to this abhorrent system of, of, of violence that animals have to endure? Why, there's, why does it seem to be such a difference in people? In many ways, I suppose it's the million dollar question, isn't it? Like, how do we, you know, create um, a form of messaging that gets everyone to make that realization immediately? The truth is humans are complex beings, psychologically speaking, very complex. And we have different personalities, different ways of processing information based on how we were raised and all these external factors that we don't necessarily as individuals ultimately have that much control over. But these things could impact how we perceive information, how we you know, act according to the information that we receive. So I think we have to understand that humans are very complex and that ultimately there can be differences in how people hold themselves accountable. You know, people, some people will, will hold themselves you know, solely accountable straight away, recognize that they have this impact and that they need to change. And so they do. And then some people will try and deflect accountability. Now, it's not my fault. We sh you know, the, the government needs to step in and change the, the practices. You know, it's nothing to do with me. You know, I'm just one person. I won't make a difference. And so there's this denialism that can creep into people where maybe there's an element of guilt. And rather than acknowledging the guilt and changing, they feel the guilt and then try and deflect it so that everyone else's problem but, but theirs. I think that what we have to do is create a system of repetition because even the people who change overnight probably... In, in almost every case, that isn't the first time they've come across this information. I think what we sometimes don't recognize is even as vegans, we might have this one aha catalyst moment, but there's been so many things that have happened throughout history that have led us to that point. You know, for me, earthlings made me go vegan, but the chicken truck crash that made me go vegetarian helped me get to that point. And even before then, seeing blackfish made me recognize things about animals. So there were all of these moments throughout my my life that led me to this point. And so Earthlings was just the final piece of the puzzle, but I, I see it as being the catalyst, the big catalyst. So even for people who maybe see Earthlings and don't make the change, that's why repetition is really important because without repetition, we can forget things. So constantly saying the word vegan, people constantly seeing vegan food, vegan arguments, just normalizes it. And the more they hear it, the less they can deny it. Which leads us nicely onto your new book. Yes. So firstly, it was always very important to me when I was writing the proposal and then writing the book, that the book was for vegans and also non-vegans as well. So in terms of this book being for vegans, it was always my intention that this book would empower vegans to learn more about the issues of animal exploitation. And then as a result, feel more confident and capable talking about veganism to the non-vegans in their life. But I also wanted this book to be for non-vegans as well, both non-vegans who are maybe already interested interested in veganism, but also non-vegans who are more skeptical about veganism. I always envisioned that this book would be the kind of book that a vegan would feel confident giving to a non-vegan friend, family member, or partner. So in terms of the contents of the book, I wanted to write a comprehensive book that basically outlined all of the main reasons that we need to be vegan and eat a plant-based diet, but do so in a way that was readable, digestible, but also indisputable. So the first section of the book focuses on the ethics of veganism, the morality of what we do to animals. The second section then focuses on the environment. It then focuses on health, both personal, but also global health. So things like pandemic risk, antibiotic resistance, and infectious disease. The final section of the book then looks at the social, cultural, and psychological reasons behind what we do to animals, because it was important to me that I didn't just write a book explaining all the main reasons to be vegan, but also within that book that I broke down why we do what we do to animals, how we got here, how we continue to justify it, and importantly, how as vegans we can break through those justifications. This is vegan propaganda and other lies the meat industry tells you. Would you say that we need more vegan propaganda? <laughs> no, well, what we need and what we desperately 
are striving to do is mm. cut through the misinformation mm. that has been perpetuated and has been perpetuated for decades right. and reshaping the narrative that has been fed to us for so long. And, and that's what I think this vegan propaganda thing is about. It's about leveling the playing field. Mm. And it's about saying, look, this is what the scientific community is telling us. This is what the medical community tell is telling us. This is what our moral intuition is showing us. Right. It's time to listen to that and not, and not the meat industry funded stuff that we've been gobbling up for, for decades. So tell us a little bit about the book itself. First of all, this very curious title. Yeah. Where did the idea come from? And just tell us a little bit about like, you know, how long the book took and the whole really story behind it. The title, yeah. I mean, I love the title and it's something that we and some, myself and the publishing team had a lot of back and forth about. This, this phrase, vegan propaganda, was suggested because I'd used it actually in a video I made about seaspiracy. I kind of said, you know, is it vegan propaganda or is this, you know, is it, is it truthful? And uh, someone had said, you know, this phrasing, vegan propaganda is so interesting. Can we incorporate it into the title? And I was like, absolutely we should because the animal farming industry has always liked to smear what we say as being this misinformation propaganda. And I think what, what I like about it is it's inviting people and saying, look, this is the information that these industries are trying to, to tarnish. This is the information they want you to think is lies. Come and have a look for yourself, check the citations at the end of the book and decide whether or not this vegan propaganda actually has some veracity to it. And so we wanted to kind of like tongue in cheek kind of disarm this phrase that the farmers like to use and say come in and have you know read for yourself and find out what you think because it's not misinformation it, it's the opposite and i think what people everyday consumers might fail to recognize is that when farmers say that vegans are spreading misinformation they're not actually criticizing vegans they're criticizing climate scientists mm -hmm. and doctors and they're criticizing kind of our moral compass because they're calling this peer-reviewed meta-analyses all, all this reputable scientific literature that has been published over and over again they're saying that that is a lie because vegans are merely just vessels for you know talking about these ideas and merely regurgitating the information that's been fed to us through the scientific method and through this this moral intuition that we have yeah you mentioned misinformation there it is a real problem on the internet in, in many areas whether it's health whether it's politics whether it's the climate crisis there is a lot of information out there that is just plain wrong. Let's just establish first the two types. There's misinformation, which is information that's accidentally passed on by people like you and me, mums and dads, grandpas and grandmas, anyone really who sees something, they instantly trust it because maybe a friend shared it with them and then they send it on. And so you get this false information spreading. And a, and a study done by Twitter showed that false information actually spreads six times faster than true information, just often because of the way it's packaged and the way it's created. And then there's disinformation, which is purposeful created from the source, whether it's vaccines, whether it's animal rights, whether it's farming, there are people out there who are paid to create misinformation. And on the topic of veganism and animals, there is a man who I often speak of called Rick Berman, who is the founder of the Center for Consumer Freedom in the US. And him and probably many other people are paid by the meat industry to create books, billboards, ads, TV ads, magazines, you name it, working like we do as communicators to try to maintain the status quo. Now, they have billions and billions and billions of pounds behind dollars or pounds behind them. Do you ever sometimes look at this and think, how are we ever going to manage to get through to enough people? Because these industries are so big and so heavily funded. How are we ever going to have that David and Goliath? Yeah. situation going on what's the rock that we can throw at the industry at the monolith to to ultimately bring it down is that even possible 
Well, we hope so, don't we? Yeah, the Rick guy, I've, uh, I'm, I'm aware of him. Actually, there's a film called Thank You for Smoking, which I think is about him, or it's like a caricature of him because mm. he's done work against, uh, drink, you know, in favor of drink driving. Yes. You know, he's just, he's really... Dr. Evil. Dr. Evil. <laughs> like how he sleeps at night, I guess we'll never know. I don't have an MD or law degree. I have a bachelor's in kicking butt and taking names. I get paid to talk. What do you talk about? I speak on behalf of cigarettes. My mommy says cigarettes kill. Now, is your mommy a doctor? No. Well, she doesn't exactly sound like a credible expert now, does she? Yeah. We call ourselves the Mod Squad. M-O-D. Merchants of Death. We're lobbyists for the tobacco, alcohol, and firearms industries. How many alcohol-related deaths a year? Well, does that thousand? That's what, 270 uh, a day? The tragedy. I front an organization that kills 1,200 people a day. Dad, I want to see what you do. The message Hollywood needs to send out is smoking is cool. You can put the sex back into cigarettes. Get a flight to L.A., I'll get you a meeting with Hollywood super agent Jeff McGall. Yeah, I'm going to bring your dad in now. Is there anything I can get you, like an orange juice or a coffee or a Red Bull? No, thanks. Okay. But what we need is a smoking role model, a real winner. Indiana Jones meets Jerry Maguire. Right, on two packs a day. So there are people out there, and I guess the issue that we have is, as you say, these industries are very well funded. I mean, there's a guy called Dr. Frank Mitlerner, who's based out in, in UC Davis in California. And again, he is a propagator of disinformation. And then, you know, as, as a consequence of that, this misinformation floods the social media and, and convinces people that farming animals is not as bad as we've been told it is by actual peer-reviewed meta-analyses and such. So I guess what do we do? I guess we just have to be conscious of the information we're sharing. What we don't want to do is fall into the trap of accidentally sharing misinformation as well. And, and we shouldn't kid ourselves into thinking that everything there is about veganism that is true. There's misinformation that can be perpetuated by vegans. And so we just have to be hyper aware of what we're sharing and make sure that we are hyper vigilant in sharing stuff that is objective and, and factual. And then hopefully over time we can break through these things I guess fundamentally, these industries are, are also against the, the wall in the sense of they are trying desperately to change something which is inevitable. I mean, Klaus did a great talk where he was talking about lab-grown meats and the future of foods, the writings on the wall. And consumers, by and large, I don't think are too interested in getting bogged down in the theorizing of these issues. I think what we need to do is just show people why veganism is, is a, a worthwhile pursuit, and that's very easy to do. And then at the same time, people need accessibility. And as soon as the market is flooded with affordable plant-based alternatives, with whether it's cell-cultured meat, 3D-printed meat, plant-based meats, or just whole plant foods, whenever it's there and it's affordable and accessible, I think people just need to be given some reasons as to why they should pick that up. Oh, that is better for you, better for the health, better for the environment, better for animals, of course. And I don't think people are too bogged down into, you know, methyl cellulose and all these, <laughs> these terms and these ingredients that people are trying to smear plant-based foods with, you know. So I think that there is just this disenfranchisement that people can feel and I guess people can hold their hands up and say, look, I'm not bothered, but look, here's a, a piece of meat that was created using, you know, cells where no animal was slaughtered. It's better for the environment and probably the same for my health, if not better. Why wouldn't I buy that if it's more affordable as well? And as soon as we reach that point, it doesn't matter what, what Rick or any of his cronies do, they can't stop people from just making those logical decisions. So we as vegans now just need to create and facilitate a society where these things will be welcomed. Right. And that, that is happening. It is. Yeah, the food tech industry, especially here in the UK, is incredibly exciting. We just, and also just across the globe as well, we published a story just yesterday about a tech startup in Israel who have launched the very first boneless salmon fillet. And I sent you the video, didn't I? And it is remarkable. It's even got all the, the marbling 
know, I can't say how much, but I know that they have in, received a huge amount of investment by a, a, an undis undisclosed investor who tried the product and was completely blown away and has given them, you know, quite a substantial amount of money within within the first few months of, of starting because he's very clear that this is product is going to revolutionize the salmon market, which is like a $50 billion global market. Right. It just makes sense if you can eat a product if you can eat something that you love, like meat, but not kill animals, it just makes sense to make that switch. And of course, as you mentioned, you know, people like Rick Berman, who are him and many people like him are trying to smear plant-based meats because they're suggesting things like it's not natural, it's yeah. not healthy, you know, the appeal to nature fallacy, right? Which just suggests that consuming things that are not natural is not natural and that it will potentially kill you. But if anyone's checked what's in your beef burger or what animals have to be injected with, for you to consume them, you probably wouldn't want to eat them, right? So you've spoken at length about your style and your communication techniques and tactics and, you know, the way you talk to people over the years has changed. Uh, from my perspective, of, you know, I've been your friend for many years of seeing the way you've evolved and the way you speak. Who are you in the beginning and who are you now and how much has really changed in the way you, you, where you communicate as a person? I like to think that a, a, lot has, a lot has changed because change hopefully symbolizes progression. So when I was at the start, I think my my arguments were probably weaker. I didn't understand the arguments maybe as much. You know, I hadn't come to, to realize people's motivations. And I think that's a really important thing is understanding people's motivations behind what they say. So I think it's obviously at the beginning when we, we go vegan, we have a lot of emotion and it's righteous emotion. You know, mm. we're, we're righteous in feeling, uh, you know, upset and mortified and yeah. frustrated. And the problem is that can kind of translate into thinking that people's motivations are bad and that they're bad people because they engage in bad things. And for me, the realization that good people do bad things and someone isn't wholly bad just because they partake in, in, in some bad things, of course, was quite groundbreaking because I realized that people's motivations weren't that they relished the prospect of causing harm to animals or that they were you know, gleeful about the environmental degradation that was caused by it. Mm. But actually there's this complex social psychological baggage behind everyone that's driven to them this point, to this point of understanding. Mm. So for me, having that understanding that people's motivations and, and people's reasoning for using the arguments they're using aren't necessarily bad, but have just come from this you know, historical baggage that we all come with mm. was quite liberating because it gave me the opportunity to try to empathize with people. Now, empathy doesn't mean agreeing. It doesn't mm. mean uh, not holding people accountable. It doesn't right. mean just accepting what people say. It just means understanding why people say it and mm. then having, I suppose, respect to respect to them and, and uh, in effect then formulate ways of communicating that are respectful but also show that what they're saying is, is wrong or is at least shouldn't be held up as a moral uh, excuse let's say so that that definitely helped me and then having that process of practicing um, you know, put myself in situations where I'll go to a university and have, you know, a queue of people waiting to talk to me, each mm. with their own eagerness to try and debunk me. Wow. I think having that kind of, I suppose, baptism by fire scenario <laughs> made me feel, way. yeah, right, made me feel more confident. That mm. kind of exposure therapy, if you like, by mm. saying, look, I'm going to have all these strangers and I don't know yeah. what they're going to say to me, yeah. but they're going to sit down and, and kind of like stress test Was my Was that arguments. thrilling or terrifying? <laughs> bit of both, <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. It's thrilling, um, and I always feel inspired because most people are kind people. 
Mm-hmm. And it's very rare that I have someone sit down who is, you know, angry and, and just, you know, wants to see me, you know, like shrivel up or whatever. Right. People uh, are often, more often than not at least, open to having just very good dialogue. And people are inquisitive, you know, they want to learn and they want to hear my side of the argument as well. And so I find that after a day of these these table debates, I feel very optimistic. And it's not even that necessarily everyone there has said, you know what, Ed, you're right, I'm going to be vegan. It's just that having a conversation where someone leaves with a more, with a more positive impression of veganism is really important because I think vegans can have an optics problem. And that's not, not necessarily our fault, but people think of us as being militant. You know, we have no sense of humor. We're devoid of fun and happiness. And, you know, we just want everyone to fulfill this dogmatic worldview that we have. And I don't think that's a fair representation of us, but people have that. And so by having someone sit down, half of the problem is just changing their perception of what being a vegan means or who a vegan is. And the other half is, of course, convincing them the arguments behind of the arguments behind veganism. So if I can sit down and have a friendly conversation with someone, you know, leave them with a more positive impression of being a vegan, then I've done 50%, I perceive, at least, of, of the, the battle. And I always think that the best thing you can do is build up a little bit of a rapport. So when someone sits down with me, um, you know, the camera operators checking the batteries, checking the microphones, doing all the checks. And we kind of take a little bit slow because I want two minutes just to interact with someone. You know, what's your name? Where are you from? What are you studying? Do you like your studies? What do you want to do when you graduate? Are you going to move to somewhere else? Are you going to live here forever? So just getting to know people and instantly showing them this isn't some sort of gotcha thing. Right. I'm not going to put up a video where I, you know, I, I edit people up to make them look silly and then say destroyed. You know, that's not my motivation here. So I think just having that kind of honest moment of where I just interact and show, look, there's nothing to be worried about. This is just a friendly conversation. You don't need to, you know, and, and back to me as well, I can establish that this person is also going to be friendly with me just puts us on a level playing field and little things like that have definitely progressed over the years and just me finding more confidence in myself and more confidence in in my arguments has definitely led to me I think being more effective hopefully absolutely I think you've come such a long way and you know watching you with people and uh, smiling and laughing and sometimes wanting to cry at some of the experiences you've experienced has been uh, really inspirational and you know I've, I've really loved watching your journey so thank, thank you for you, all Rob. those conversations oh, they, thank you they've Robbie. Been very effective hey Q nice to meet you uh, my name is Ed and today I'm at the University of Dallas with a banner that says why aren't you vegan yet you've been listening to a conversation I've just been having yes and it seems like you have some questions or some ideas or thoughts so let me know what you think So my first question for you is, what is your opinion on the native tribes, such as the Inuit who live up in Alaska, who don't have easy access to these fresh produce that you're wanting them to eat and instead rely on the animals they hunt? Yeah, well, the issue of uh, what we do to animals is an issue of necessity. This question of veganism comes down to the options and choices that we have. So there are obviously people in the world who don't have the availability or the access to be plant-based or to be vegan, who are maybe in tribes and in in indigenous communities where they don't have the access that you and I have where we live with the means that we have and so as a consequence of that the you know the morality of that situation is very different because they hunt animals and eat animals out of necessity but the point of me being here with the banner about why aren't you vegan yet is to draw on the fact that it's about you and I and the situation that we have and the means that we have which is why it becomes a moral issue for us I mean you talk about you know us like we are not part of these indigenous tribes I mean these indigenous tribes yes they live you know out remote away from you know civilization but many of them you know they don't they don't see veganism as like they don't want veganism because they what about you i i don't want to be vegan and why don't you want to be vegan because one i have um 
I'm a neurotic, which means I'm very sensitive to certain things. So I already am, you know, picky about what I eat. And so trying to find like a substitute for the nutrition's that nutrients that I need is very risky. So eating meat, meat that I know, meat that I understand, you know, it helps me that way. However, with these indigenous tribes, they, 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 because you have to understand, veganism is very much a white colonized thought. It well, very much is. But people say that, but then also people say that when you look at the roots of non-harming animals for diets, it's deep rooted in places like, like Hindu cultures and Jainist cultures. And so the idea of abstaining from eating animals is very much deep rooted in kind of like Buddhist, uh, Hindu and Jainist cultures and, and not necessarily in a white colonialist process at least. Yes, but like Hindu and Hinduism, they don't eat cows. They believe cows are sacred, yeah. but they eat other meats. Well, not many don't, and, and historically many haven't as well. So I'm just saying that it's not strictly true that this idea of non-harm to animals is a strictly white colonialist thought. So I don't know if that holds up historically speaking. Yeah, historically speaking, it's not. But this sudden boom of veganism is historically colonial. You ha do what you mean by colonial in this context then? I, I mean colonial as in the white colonizers, as in the Europeans coming colonizing half the world, I mean the Americans colonizing the West, the, there's a recent surge in, you know, white liberals who believe they're doing good and who believe, you know, such as, you know, you, and, I, and I'm not saying vegan is bad. Veganism yeah. is not bad. If you want to be vegan, be vegan. Yeah, cool. But when it comes to p pressuring other people who don't want who don't want this and who have yeah. different beliefs for yeah. instance yeah. are you aware of the view of cosmocentrism cosmocentrism no you explain it to me so cosmocentrism is is a worldwide view believed by many many of its indigenous tribes yeah. in which everything is equal to each other me you the trees the grass the yeah. water the rocks the animals are all equal to each other yeah. and yeah. animals hear us and they understand us sure. and so with many people such as the um not the inuit tribe there's another tribe in alaska sure. starts with the k i can't remember That's at the okay. moment they believe that the earth was made by the raven. Their god, for if, sure. to put it in terms, is a raven. Yeah. But they hunt. They hunt elk and they hunt moose. Yeah. But they don't just hunt them. They respect the animal. They take sure. everything from the animal and they yeah. think the animal. Yeah. And they think the animal in several ways. They don't talk about hunting moose. They just say, I'm going to go out. Yeah. Because the, they know the moose hears them. And if sure. they say, I'm going to go hunt moose, the moose thinks, hears that and, they, and says, I, you know, they are not worthy to have me. Oh, okay. They are not worthy to 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 have to eat me, yeah. and so it hides. Because they presumably don't want to be killed if they're going to be alerted to that. But the point that I'm making is that I'm not in those areas of the world talking to indigenous people in those areas. I'm talking to people here. Um, and whilst we may make the argument that when we look at the rise of, of veganism as a, as a popular cultural thing, it's kind of emerging from yeah, places in Europe, Australia, and the US. Actually, when you look at the growth rates of veganism in, in America, one of the biggest demographics in terms of adopting veganism are African-Americans. And so to make the claim that it's a strictly white colonialist thing doesn't hold up, especially as white vegans aren't going to indigenous communities in Alaska. In your book, you talk about being vegan or not being vegan as a moral question. If the baseline is that we don't want to cause harm to all animals, just as we wouldn't want to cause harm to dogs and cats and other pets, then how could we continue to consume meat and say that farming animals isn't cruel? Some farmers say that it, is, it isn't cruel, that it, there's, it's a huge leap to suggest that all farming is cruel. Do you feel like farmers and people in these industries are willingly shutting their eyes 
blinded by culture or do you feel like our whole species really just suffers some kind of sort of collective denial when it comes to the reality because all you have to do is spend any time in a factory farm knowing that actually some 97% of most of the meat that we consume in this country in the US is factory farmed. Why do you think there's just so much sort of denial to the reality of what's going on? I think because accepting it means that we have to change. You know, accepting it, it's not, not only that we have to change, but that we then have to reflect on the fact that the way we've always lived has caused all this suffering and, and was never moral. You know, for us, especially now in the context of, of the society that we're in, at least, obviously different in the past when we had to to survive, you know, eat meat, but now we don't have to. So not only would that realization mean that we have to change, but it causes us to reflect on who we are as people. Are we moral? You know, who are we? What do we represent? What are our values? Because that's the thing about going vegan is it, it opens our eyes up to the prospect that we haven't necessarily been as moral as we'd like to have been. And that can open our eyes to other systems of oppression, other things that we partake in that maybe we shouldn't be partaking in. So it's a catalyst for change beyond just what we do to animals, at least hopefully it should be. I think that farmers are an interesting section of society because farmers are very insular. You know, for most of us being raised in cities, we'll have multiple social groups. We'll probably go to a university in a different city and interact in different ways. And we'll, you know, being in cities, there's a diversity hopefully that comes with that, a difference of opinion. But farmers, because they live in more rural areas, their social groups are more isolated. They have less capacity to be around people that disagree with them. And of course, farming is a, an ancestral thing. You know, not many people get into farming for the first time. You know, people who are farmers now, their parents were probably farmers. Their grandparents were probably farmers. Maybe their great-great-grandparents were farmers as well. So there's this whole lineage there. So not only does that come with the consistent perpetuation and normalization of these ideas, but at the same time, it also comes with a huge amount of pressure. You know, am I going to be the one to say, I'm no longer going to be part of this thing that's been part of my entire family tree. A bit like abdicating from the royal family. Oh, exactly. And, and we know that doesn't come without <laughs> consequences as well, right? So there is this, I think, huge amount of pressure that, that is put on farmers as individuals, you know, shame and guilt. And then on top of that, if they were to even think for a second that what they were doing was so immoral, which it is, now they've got so much pressure. So there is this willful ignorance that undeniably must occur. You know, we say that we're against animal cruelty. And if you ask someone to name an example of animal cruelty, they'll say, oh, I don't know, like kicking a dog, right? Or punching a cat, which is undeniably cruel. But if our criteria for animal cruelty is as simple as kicking a dog, then what does forcing billions of pigs in a gas chamber constitute? You know, if it's cruel to hit one cat, then how is it not cruel to cut the throats of billions of cows and cattle and sheep and chickens and fish and all these other animals? So we do have this inherent paradox between how we view our relationship with animals and what our relationship actually is. I mean, ironically, there's this huge disparity where as a society, we probably think that animals deserve more moral consideration than we ever have at any point in our history. And yet currently we cause more suffering to animals than we ever have at any point in our history. So the, the attitudes of, of how we feel towards animals and the reality of what we do are becoming more and more opposite and paradoxical because we think we're becoming more compassionate. But the globalization and intensification of animal farming and the growing intensification means that actually we're causing more suffering than we ever have. So there is undeniably a paradox there that needs to be addressed. Of all the sort of many interviews that you've had and all the farmers that you've spoken to, have your views and attitudes towards these people evolved over the years? Yes. I used to think that all farmers were probably these evil people, these bad people. But I think there's a difference between the everyday farmer, you know, someone who, as I said, has been raised in these families, this, this tradition, this history for you know, all of their life and, and lives beyond them. And then the people who are propagating this, this misinformation. 
So these people who are, who are at the top of the NFU and the AHDB, who are responsible for perpetuating these lies, who are using money from the meat industry to fund studies that they then, that they then disseminate using their PR teams. You know, these people are doing a disservice to the farming community that they're supposed to represent because they're feeding them with these lies that are making them feel more solidified in their views. What's happened, I suppose, is there's this idea that vegans and farmers can't coexist or get along. When actually what we need is the recognition that vegans and farmers can work together to create a better system. You know, I think the everyday farmer would like, I'd like to hope at least, would think that what they're doing is sustainable and ethical, which gives me the idea that they want a sustainable and ethical farming system. System. So now what we need is an honest conversation about why what they do isn't sustainable or ethical, and then how can we create something that is actually sustainable and ethical. But the problem is these farmers who have these views entrenched to them with all the baggage that we've just discussed, or having these lies perpetuated to them by the people who are representing them, these unions and these levy boards that they fund. And so that's, I think, where the, the evilness of the farming industry comes into play. You know, these people who have positions of authority and power who should know better and do and do know better. You know, the, the heads of the NFU know that rainforests in South America are not being destroyed for soy milk and tofu, but are being destroyed to feed the chickens and pigs and dairy cows. They know that, but they're more than happy to go to the press and say with a straight face, our vegans are destroying the rainforests. With their avocados with their and their avo exactly. soya mints. And they know better because these aren't unintelligent people, quite the opposite. They're intelligent people who are using their intelligence to manipulate people in a way that isn't fair, in a way that is propagating lies, and in a way that is holding us back from actually creating what would truly be an ethical and sustainable food system. One of the ways um, the meat industry or the various animal product industries prop up ailing consumer confidence in animal farming are things like red tractor, uh, you talk about it in chapter three. What are some of the best ways in which we can expose the truth behind these labels? Because they are pretty insidious in the way they work. They give people almost like the confidence to buy an animal product under the guise that the animals have died nicely or been treated well. You know, should we all becoming undercover investigators or what's the, what's the way we can deal with this? We just have to recognize what's what's there in front of us. You know, it, when you do a little bit of digging into the red tractor scheme, you realize that it's not worth the ink it's printed with. It is a, a truly disgraceful scheme that was set up by the animal farming industries. It's owned by the NFU, by Dairy UK. So the very people it's supposed to be holding accountable are the people who own it. And if you look at the board of directors, one of the board of directors is also a CEO of one of the most powerful meat lobby groups in the UK. Another one is also the agricultural director of Avara Foods, who are the biggest producers of poultry meat in, in the UK. And so these are the people who are creating the guidelines, who are on the board of directors for the Red Tractor Scheme, which is supposed to reassure us that animals are treated with kindness and compassion, yet they're also the people who are making you know, billions you know, as an industry off of the exploitation of animals. There was an investigation done by The Times, which showed that fewer than 0.08% of audits were unannounced. I mean, that's absolutely staggering, which means that the farmers who have been audited are, are told, oh, we're gonna come around and inspect your farm on, on this date at this time. Okay, Giving well, them ample opportunity to clear up any misgivings, right? Exactly right. Mm. So lo and behold, everyone's reassured and we're told that these farms are fine because the red tractor scheme has right. been there. But the red tractor scheme is auditing farmers who fund it through their memberships and through, through the union memberships. And it's auditing farms owned by people who sit on the board of directors of Red Tractor. Mm. I mean, how does that create impartiality in, in audits? It's like the foxes being put in charge of the chicken coop. Exactly. And being asked whether they should have tighter locks or not. Exactly right. <laughs> I mean, that, you kind of, yeah, that's such a great way of putting it. 
And so the red tractor scheme basically is a facade. So mm -hmm. it's trying to convince us that these animals are treated in a way that's substantial. But actually, most of these practices and regulations that red tractor encourages farmers to have are just the legal laws anyway. Mm -hmm. That this is just what's been enshrined by our legal system. So red tractor doesn't even really go beyond what's preordained already by the legal system that we have by by the laws. So. And, and it, we see time and time again, farms being investigated, you know, red tractor approved farms, because most of them are in this country. We see time and time again that they're investigated and time and time again, not only are they breaching red tra tra tractor standards, they're breaching legal standards. Mm -hmm. And of course, what they're doing is, is incredibly immoral to begin with. And yet we're still sold this idea that these are one bad farm, you know, it's one bad apple. But at a certain point, we have to recognize that it's not the apples that are rotten, it's the whole tree. The roots are rotten. And the only way to stop it is to, to pull up the roots and start again. And, and that's what we have to do. Not think that these labels mean anything because they don't. We have to understand that objectively speaking, outside of the legal system, there's no right way to do the wrong thing. You know, if we look at gas chambers, for example. Gas chambers are you know, seen as this humane method of killing animals. Well, back in 2003, the UK government's own Animal Welfare Committee said that gas chambers should be phased out nearly 20 years ago. But now we kill nearly nine out of 10 pigs in the gas chamber. The majority of birds are killed in gas chambers. 20 years ago, nearly, we were told that they should be phased out on welfare grounds, but they've just been created more and more. And we're told that these are humane. For those who don't know what a gas chamber is, because obviously it might convey images of people in gas chambers, what actually is a gas chamber in the context of animal agriculture? Well, th we have pig gas chambers and we have poultry gas chambers. And so with, with birds, they're normally taken straight from the trucks in the crates they're transported in and put into these big kind of, yeah, I mean, it's like a, just like a big thing, like a chamber that is filled with carbon dioxide. With pigs, they're loaded into kind of like metal gondolas, which are lowered into this pit, again, filled with, with CO2. And in the UK, the kind of mix of the CO2 is, is normally over 80% which is highly aversive, you know, causes not only the panic of suffocation, but causes an aversive, painful reaction with the acidification of moisture with these pigs. So they're enduring a painful experience whilst also suffocating and the panic and fear that comes along with that. And so, yeah, they're just these big pits that pigs are lowered into, two or three pigs at a time, filled with CO2 that obviously causes them to suffocate to death whilst also experiencing pain. And it's a similar thing for chickens. So they are just absolutely obviously terrible i mean how we could ever say that these things are humane just shows how i suppose detached we are from what we do to animals you know because the word humane means having or showing compassion or benevolence if we call someone a humane person you know needlessly killing someone else is the last thing that person would be doing because being humane means being compassionate but how is putting an animal in a gas chamber how is cutting their throat compassionate or kind it's the opposite of these things and yet we're consistently sold this lie that what we do to animals is this very you know mutual experience where the animals are happy and have this wonderful life and then they die consensually and peacefully and nothing could be further from the truth than than that mm. that leads me on to my next question which was very simply can there ever be such a thing as a happy farm animal no I mean, obviously animals, some animals raised in farms will have experiences that might be, you know, okay for them, such as grazing cattle, you know, pasture raised animals may, you know, have a significant portion of their life where they're doing things that they would like to do. But this happiness is, is a state. It's not just a temporary thing. And so for even these sy systems of farm, which are more idyllic and more quote unquote humane, 
there's still basic things that are required within animal farming. A lot of that's mutilations, forced impregnations, separations of babies from their mothers, and ultimately slaughterhouses. And so even with these outdoor raised ruminant animals, they live a fraction of their lifespan. And then they're killed in a slaughterhouse. You know, there's no happiness in exploitation. And if we really want to prioritize the happiness of animals, then we need to act in their best interests, which we don't. We act in the best interests of us, the consumers, but also the farmers who want to profit from these animals. And so whilst our intentions are to exploit and profit from the bodies of someone else, we're not facilitating true happiness for these animals, even in systems that may, we may perceive to be more beneficial than, of course, the factory farming systems that we all recognize are, are truly despicable. Farming has um, been given a romanticized view for generations. We've talked about it before. Um, when asked to picture the average farm, most people visualize rolling green hills and sheep grazing nonchalantly on the grass. But the reality is that much of the landmass on earth today is used and taken up by farming. Practices that spew huge amounts of methane, nitrous oxide, and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, not to mention destroying and poisoning rivers across the planet, quickening the warming of our planet, and of course, potentially our ultimate demise. COP26 was the global summit on climate change, which concluded recently in Glasgow. Animal agriculture and the effect of diet on the climate crisis was barely mentioned. How do you feel about that? I'm disappointed. Maybe it was my own optimism or delusion that made me think that this would be something substantial, yeah. you know, COP26. It was disappointing in every sense of the word, but also when we look specifically at agriculture, especially disappointing because there wasn't even really a topic of conversation. And what I found to be particularly demoralizing is that whilst nations, EU, the US and such, were debating reducing methane emissions by 30% by 2030, the US Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, was talking to the press about how in the US there's no need to reduce the number of animals being farmed, that that's not, that's not a problem. We have this problem where our politicians are playing lip service to these issues, and we know that. You know, the environment has become finally a, a voting point. It's become something that they know will win votes, but the role of animal agriculture in the environmental crisis has not become something that will win votes. If anything, it's the opposite. So what we have now are politicians talking positively about wanting to change the climate crisis that we're in and reverse it and hopefully avoid the worst effects of it because it's something that they know will appeal to voters. That, that's it. I may be cynical, but it's true. I mean, where, where was the US government 20 years ago when Al Gore released an inconvenient truth? You know, nowhere to be seen. But now because of Greta and these, this movement, primarily in younger people, it's now become something they've had to acknowledge as being an issue. But we're not aware of the effects of animal farming yet. So it's still left off the talking points. And that's a, a crime. Yeah, I think um, Biden recently, a couple of days ago, said that they're going to be putting through billions of dollars to prop up animal agriculture even more to save farms and save the meat industry from going under. It kind of drives me crazy. But one of the things that a lot of non-vegans love to suggest is that by eating local meat, eating animals that are farmed in the, in the small farm down the road from your house is the best way to live. It's more environmentally friendly. What do you say to those people who say eating local meat makes everything fine? The concept of eating local being more sustainable only works if the systems of farming are identical and if the only difference is the transportation the two foods have had to travel which is just completely untrue and there's no scientific literature to support that when we look at beef farming and lamb farming over 98 percent of the emissions caused and the damage caused by the production of, of beef and lamb is the farming itself so that means that only 0.5 to 2 percent or so of the emissions is coming from the transportation so buying beef or sheep meat from just down the road is not sustainable because the majority of the damage that's caused by it is from the farming. And even the notion of, of buying the same food being local doesn't always work because 
a couple of studies have been done, for example, the production of tomatoes. You know, buying tomatoes from Portugal was actually more sustainable for people in Sweden than buying tomatoes from Sweden because the production of tomatoes in Sweden required energy because they were being produced in, in greenhouses. So it doesn't even always work that the same food is more sustainable just because it's local. But the idea of local farming, I think, perpetuates almost a nationalistic narrative. And we're always told to support British farmers here. I did a BBC thing earlier today, and one of the main arguments was, well, we should support local British farmers. And that feeds into the idea that these farmers and, and their industry is worth more than, say, the soybean farmers in France who produce the tofu that we as vegans consume. And of course, that's not true. From a moral perspective, there's no difference between the two individuals producing those foods and the support they should receive. And from an environmental perspective, producing soy in France and you know exporting it to the UK in the form of tofu and soy milk is vastly more sustainable than producing the beef. And we know that from, from the scientific literature. You'll be intimately aware of reducing food's environmental impact through producers and consumers. A landmark study from, from Poronemic that is the most comprehensive analysis ever conducted, you know, exploring the relationship between farming and the environment. And they categorically stated, after looking at nearly 40,000 farming facilities in over 113 countries, I believe, around the world, that a plant-based diet is the most sustainable diet. Even when you factor in transport emissions and food miles, that fact still remains. People just refuse to believe it, don't they? I, I guess it's the complexity of the food system that I think a lot of people struggle with. And, and we're not taught this at school. And in fact, we're taught the opposite because often you know, these industries have their fingers in many educational systems. My friend Matthew Friedman, who is the co-founder of Aim High Earth, beautiful activism group, educational group, teaching people about environmentalism, educating thousands of children around the world about the planet. He has described the climate crisis as, in fact, the nature crisis or the earth crisis. Do you feel that it could be important to reframe these existential crises as something more closer to home, as Matthew does? It seems to me that most people are totally ambivalent to what's going on out there in the plan on the in the on the planet in the in the atmosphere. They feel very removed from it. But when we talk about something as like the nature crisis or the earth crisis, you know, again going back to effective communication, we're using language as a way to try and make it more relatable rather than these big broad subjects with big data numbers and parts per million this and mm. these sort of things. Do you think there's much merit in the way we reframe the problem? Yeah, I think it's essential. I think when we talk about issues that have a huge scope, it can be easy to take this huge scope and try and convey like the massive, try and view the problem in its entirety. And I think you're right in saying that sometimes simplifying and creating a more close to home opinion of these issues is important. I, I remember a few years ago, I heard someone say, you know, we always say save the planet, save the planet. But actually what we're talking about is saving ourselves. And I thought, wow, that's really powerful because it's true. The planet will survive. It will, you know, regenerate and life will probably evolve out of what's regenerated here. But we won't. And unfortunately, the animals who we coexist with won't either, or at least the vast majority of them. So we're talking about saving ourselves and saving our children, our grandchildren. I remember George Monbiot, he often re, you know, reinforces this. And I saw he did an interview on Good Morning Britain where he became very upset when he was thinking about his children. Because I think that that's how we can really you know, make this issue something that people resonate with by saying this isn't you know, this is kind of existential thing. This is something that maybe you don't feel the tangible effects of yet, but you know, millions of people around the world already are. Climate refugees, people who have done the least to cause this problem are already suffering the consequences of what we in affluent nations continue to do. I think humanizing the crisis is very important. It's the same with the ethical implications of veganism. You know, if we say to people, you know, we kill over 80 billion land animals and somewhere between 0.8 and 2.3 trillion marine animals every year, which, which are the figures, we go, wow, that's a big number. Mm. But that's all it is, a number. Yeah. And it's so huge in, in scale that we can hardly even 
empathize with that because it's just so abstract as a concept. But if we say individuals, and we think of not a, a chicken farm has been filled with you know millions of chickens, but millions of individuals each enduring their own subjective experience of that suffering, it becomes easier to empathize because we can empathize with an individual, but we can't empathize with an abstract number. So I think even when we're talking about the ethics of veganism, let's focus less on the scale of the problem, but more on the individuals who are suffering as a consequence of that. Because even if we did it, you know, what we do to just one chicken or one pig, it would still be immoral, irrespective of whether or not we do it to 79 billion others. And so I think in the same way with the environment, I think creating that close to home, that idea of something that we can physically empathize with, I think that's a really powerful thing to do. You've often talked about the Socratic method as one of your tools um, in your tool belt of communication in your interviews. Can you talk us through just some of the basic steps when it comes to engaging with people in, as a communicator and people out there who may want to improve, is there some sort of anecdotes from the book that you can share about that process and how to be better at it with our friends and family? Number one, I think, is just be as educated as you can. Now, we're not ever going to know everything. And someone might say something we don't have the perfect response to. But I think before, you know, just take the time. And reading the book's a great way of doing this, you know, minus the selfless plug, right? But it is objectively a, a great way of just learning some of these arguments. Because people will tend to say the same things over and over again. So having a good response to that is really important. So just taking some time to educate ourselves, number one. Secondly, practice. Now, that doesn't mean we have to go into conversations with non-vegan friends and family. It might mean practicing with vegans in our lives, you know, setting up like a dummy conversation. You know, when actors are rehearsing their scripts, you know, they're rehearsing with a friend, with a family member, or they're saying it out loud. They're getting used to saying and vocalizing what it is they need to say. And I think it's the same for us. It's just get used to saying what it is you want to say, because often we can know what we want to say, but actually physically saying it can be difficult. So getting used to hearing those words being vocalized and getting used to saying it can be really powerful because it means we're, we're less likely to get flustered or frustrated in a conversation when we can't get our words out properly. So practicing is important. And then I think at the same time, as well as practicing, I think we have to take a moment to practice listening, I suppose, as well. When we have a conversation with someone, the last thing we want to do is, is end up in an argument where we're speaking over each other progressively louder and louder and it's becoming more heated and, and flustered. That's not, what, that's not what we want. So I think practicing listening is very important. And listening allows us to dissect people's arguments further because we can hear the nuances of the language they're using. We can pick up on certain things they're insinuating and we can lead with that. You know, and we can try and get to understand people's emotions better. And as a consequence of that, we can ask them to reflect on what they're saying more. You know, rather than thinking, what's my next question gonna be because of what I want to say? What's my next question gonna be based on what they're saying to me? So I think listening is very important. You know, the empathy again aspect is very important and validation. Now, validating, again, doesn't mean agreeing with someone. It just means trying to understand how they've got to that conclusion. So if someone says, you know, but, you know, being vegan is very unhealthy. What about iron and, and protein? You can say, well, look, I understand why you'd be worried about that. You know, we've been told that we need to eat red meat for iron and animal products are a great source of protein. Look, I understand why you feel that way. But have you considered the fact that we can get protein and iron from plants and this is supported by the British Dietetic Association, blah, blah, blah. So that validation shows that we're listening and it shows they're not being we're not being condescending or insincere with the person, that we're empathizing and reflecting on why they've said that and not caricaturing them as being an unintelligent or uneducated or you know bad because of what they're saying. We're understanding the, the process that's allowed them to get to that point. 
that definitely helps mm. as well as well amazing some great tips i hope you've written all of those down <laughs> and get the book as well available on so it's available um on, on waterstones mm -hmm. amazon and in the uk and europe it's available in bookstores like waterstones foils and also independent bookstores and if it's not in your local independent bookstore you can request for it to be stocked there which is always super good and in the US, it's been published on the 6th of April. So you can order it online with international delivery from places like Book Depository and Waterstones. But from the 6th of April, they'll also be available in US bookstores and on the US Amazon and retailers as well. Amazing. Onto the subject of progress over perfection. There's a lot of discussion on social media between vegans about being the perfect vegan. Many people actually fear adopting this lifestyle or getting involved in it because of the the way that they can be treated as new vegans on social media or by friends and family. What do you say to people who are terrified of becoming vegan because they're worried about this perfection, uh, perfection over progress rather than progress over perfection that seems to pervade, especially online, as pervade our community online? It's a good question. I think it works both ways. I think that there's an unfair expectation placed on vegans to not voice when something is wrong. I think when someone first goes vegan and you know maybe they aren't intimately aware of how much animal exploitation is permeated throughout society and maybe buy something they don't recognize because they've just gone vegan and make that mistake. Of course, we should point out and say, hey, just so you know, yeah. don't do this again. Call because... them in rather than calling them out. Exactly. But at the same time, there comes a point where people, there is an accountability that should be held on people. And that doesn't mean being Agreed. you know aggressive or no. rude or hostile, but it does mean pointing out people's flaws in that sense. But I think accountability comes from within. And I don't think that, you know, we should view ourselves as being the police of others, but we should view ourselves as, as kind of that voice of accountability to say, look, you need to check yourself because ultimately accountability is what led us all to being vegan. It wasn't anyone else. You know, other people might have given us the information that led us to that point, but we processed that information and said, you know what, I do have a responsibility here to change. So I think accountability is important. And I always encourage people to, you know, if they're in a situation where they feel like someone is criticizing them, or is being cruel to them. I think it's important to not take that cruelty if it's, if it's hurting you, but at the same time reflect on why is someone saying this to me? You know, it may make me feel upset that they're saying, hey, this coat has down in it, or hey, you were vegan, now you're eating chicken again, what's that about? But it, outside of that, we have to go, well, why are they saying this? Because ultimately we have to hold ourselves accountable more than anyone else can hold us accountable. Absolutely, I've, I've got a story recently, a good friend of mine who's been vegan for about seven years, is very aware of all the issues, uh, has been buying like woolen jumpers and leather shoes. And, you know, I've, I've called them out on it in, 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 the nice, in a nice way, not in a nasty, aggressive way. And they have reacted with, with a sort of, you know, not aggressive, but been quite upset with me. I'm not the boss of them. I'm not, I shouldn't be policing their actions. You know, have you got any advice for me how to deal with this situation? Because it's, it's obviously, it does hurt when you have a good friend or a family member who's been with you on this vegan journey for a long time. And then they might start eating meat again, or they might start buying animal products. You know, what's the best way in your view to deal with something like this? Well, I think firstly, yeah, we shouldn't resort to tactics like being, you know, calling people names and being cruel to people and like yeah. saying things that are obviously untoward. And I think vegans can fall into that trap because obviously it's such an emotional thing that when someone starts harming animals again, when they don't need to, of course, our automatic reaction is to be like, you're a terrible person. And you know, sometimes that may be true, but ultimately is that an effective way of publicly communicating our feelings? That's not, not true. So what we need to do, I think is just, you know, deploy the same tactics we always have, just why is this wrong? 
Why is, is what they're doing something they shouldn't be doing? And people will react with indignation because by going, oh, look, that's making me feel upset. They can try and go, oh, look, I'm the victim here. We, we all sometimes like to play the victim card and have that victim mentality because it removes the accountability that we need to have because we go, oh, look, you know, you're being mean to me. And it's like, well, actually, no, I'm just trying to hold up the mirror to yourself to say, look, you're being mean to others and this isn't something that aligns with your values. Mm -hmm. So I think it's always that question of how does this action this person's partaking in actually align with the values that they have and trying to get them to recognize there is that disalignment that has occurred. And maybe that's something you could do with your friend to say, you know, would you kill the cow yourself for that leather jacket or that, those leather shoes? You know, would you want to send the, the lamb to the slaughterhouse and pull the blade across their throat yourself for, for the wool and jacket? And if you wouldn't, then you've recognized that it's not a moral thing to do. So encouraging someone to see the disconnection in their moral compass and the actions they're partaking in is more powerful than calling someone a name because they've done something that is obviously wrong, but was coming has made us feel emotional in a way that we're not being effective anymore. It's a difficult thing, but we, we move forward. Your book concludes with an afterword that simply reminds us that a vegan world would be better for everyone. What do you ultimately hope people take away after reading your book? I want people to be more educated about the benefits of veganism and the, the negative aspects of what we do to animals. So I want people to be armed with the information as to why veganism is a moral imperative and a plant-based diet is beneficial. And then I want people to understand the behavior drivers behind our actions. And the way the book is, I suppose, split up is the first section is, is about ethics. It's about what we do to animals, why that's morally wrong. The second section is about then is then about how it affects us environment, climate change, uh, personal health, infectious diseases, pandemics. So then it's saying, look, this affects us as well. So it's beyond just a moral issue for that reason. It's all of this as well. And then the first section is saying, look, this is why we act in the way that we do. This is why our behaviors can seem so ridiculous and seem so disconnected from our actual feelings. And this is how we can get through that. We can empower ourselves to be informed consumers and we can recognize how our behavior has been influenced by cognitive biases, by media and marketing. The last chapter, the afterword, is really saying this is the solution. You've recognized this is a problem. You've understood, you've understood why, behaviorally speaking, we've created this problem. And this is how we fix this problem. Because I think what can often happen is people think, oh, vegans have these bright ideas, but what does that actually look like, tangibly speaking? And we can be criticized for not having an alternative view. Because if we're the ones going to people and saying, this is wrong, it needs to be different, we also need to teach people how it can be different and why that difference is preferable. So that the afterword is many talking about the advancements we need to make. What else can we do with that land? How can we support animal farmers as they transition out of this cruel industry? And, and that was the main focus of, of that, to say, look, this is the problem to animals. This is the problem to us. This is why we do what we do. And this is how we can change that. Amazing. I love that it's so solution-focused. It's very easy to stand on rooftops screaming and shouting that you know the world's coming to an end and that animals are suffering but as you say if we don't provide solutions to the fellow humans around us people are very unlikely to listen and when it's delivered in such a coherent way i, I definitely feel like a lot of people will will listen so thank you for this ed thank you um, unity diner a vegan fish and chip shop in brighton and animal sanctuary honestly how do you find the time to do all these things and not be completely burnt out, but also how do you make sure that all these ideas and things that you're doing are being delivered effectively, delivered effectively and in ways that you really, that resonate with you as a person in your ethos in life? I work with amazing people. Yeah. I am so privileged to work with creative, compassionate, brilliant people, whether it's through Surge and, and the, the editors and animator that we have that create the Surge media videos, whether it's the, the wonderful people who wake up every day at the sanctuary, and take care of the animals and make sure they have fresh bedding and food and make sure they're safe and well cared for. Everything that I have done outside of, you know, the book is a very personal thing, but everything that 
you know, I've created with, with the food, with the sanctuary has come about through cooperation with others. And I'm just, you know, so fortunate to have been able to surround myself with these kinds of people. So that's really, that's the secret, I suppose, is find people who are like-minded, who are, you know, compassionate and, and who have the same values as you and see how you can work together to create, you know, a bigger impact. And that's what I've been fortunate enough to be able to do since fairly early on in this process. Mm. And do you ever suffer burnout because you're involved in so many different things? If you, and, and if you do, how do you deal with it? I mean, sometimes I, I wake up and I'm like, oh, another, you know, another day of thinking about this and talking about this and, and dealing with this. But the way to get around that I've always found is to not lose touch with other things I enjoy. Veganism is my life. It's my work. It's my passion. It's the thing I care most about. But at the same time, it's not my whole identity. You know, I have an identity outside of veganism, someone who enjoys going out for food, someone who enjoys, enjoys listening to music, who likes watching films and going to the cinema. That's also part of my identity, enjoying these other aspects of my life. And so I think we shouldn't feel guilt or shame in, in making time for other aspects of our lives that we enjoy and, and form our identity as well. And that's what I've learned um, is to, you know, take an evening off and, and put a film on, go to the cinema, watch a TV series, whatever it might be. If you're an artist, to, to paint something that's not vegan related, whatever it might be, to find that space from thinking about veganism and the brutality of what happens every day is so important because as you say without it the, the burnout can creep in and you know I've had moments where I felt just so terribly exhausted because of it but then you just take a moment to recharge and uh, that, that keeps me going for sure. So here we are at the Surge Sanctuary. Can't believe that it's actually here that I'm sat currently on 18 acres of land in the Midlands of England. It's so incredible to be here. It's kind of so surreal, I have to keep pinching myself because this has been something we've been wanting to do for over two years now. Obviously we opened Unity Diner just over two years ago with the intention to open up an animal sanctuary. And so we're here, we've finally done it. This is the Surge Sanctuary and we can't wait to show you around. Obviously 2020 has been a particularly difficult year in the hospitality industry. It's been a difficult year in all sorts of industries. That's. Eric the Sheep wandering by. We wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for you guys. So thank you so much to all of you who have supported us, who have come to Unity Diner and eaten the food. And of course, thank you so much to the Unity Diner staff as well, because this place wouldn't exist without them either. So thank you to everyone who has worked at Unity Diner and of course continues to work. Tell us a little bit about the sanctuary. So who lives there? Tell us about some of the lovely fluffy creatures, any of their names or stories. Yeah, we have, I think now over 130 residents at the wow. sanctuary ducks, chickens, pigs, cows. We have an eclectic mix of characters and personalities and it's it's a really wonderful thing to see, I suppose, just this union of different species of animals coexisting. It, it's, it's kind of marvelous to see how the pigs interact with the sheep and the chickens interact with the with the ducks and such. And this, this community that's forming within the animals as well. We've got a, a couple of really touching stories such as Matilda the pig. Matilda escaped from a pig farm when she was pregnant and gave birth to her piglets in, in a woods nearby the farm. Uh, fortunately, a, a dog walker spotted them and alerted a, a nearby animal rescue called Brinsley Animal Rescue to what Matilda had done and where she was. And after a, a process of negotiation with the farmer, the farmer accepted or uh, relinquished, let's say, not that you can relinquish ownership of, of another being, but allowed Brinsley to, to take in Matilda, who was then rehomed with us. And the, the story was a, a national story. It was in the BBC and such talking yeah, I think about- I we covered it as well, didn't we? I think we? you yeah. did, yeah, yeah. Talking about Matilda and her maternal desire to raise her children in safety and the fact that she'd broken out of this farm to try and find, liberate herself and mm. as a consequence, liberate her children was I think a very profound story. We also have some rescued cows. These are some older ladies, a little bit in the <laughs> twilight years, some of them. And they come from this farm 
where they'd been kept inside for a couple of years and they were living in 20 inches of feces and dirt. And the farmer had, had lost, they had no money basically. And I think the female farmer's husband had left her and left her with these cows that she had no money to, to do anything you know, to support anymore. So she sent a bunch of them to slaughter, sadly enough. And then she had these this group of older ladies who she'd spent, I guess, a lot of time with who she didn't want to send to slaughter. And so she let us take them and, and now they live at the sanctuary with us. But that story, I think, reveals a certain interesting attitude that we have towards animals and even farmers. You know, she sent some of these cows to slaughter because she didn't have a connection with them. So she'd assigned their worth as being less than these other female cattle, these other cows, because she had a relationship with these other cows. And I think it speaks to the power of connection with animals. And I think that's why sanctuaries are so important, because it's like I was saying earlier about creating this impression of individuals. That's what sanctuaries do. They show animals as being individuals. What we do often is we create abstractions of, of the animals who we farm. You know, chickens. Chickens are this way. Cows. Cows are this way. But sanctuaries and the stories that we can tell from sanctuaries reinforce that even within these species, there's a uniqueness to the individuals. You know, one cow maybe likes scratches behind the ear and another cow doesn't. This chicken likes broccoli, but this chicken doesn't. And it reveals the, the complexity of these sentient beings. And that's why I think is very powerful about sanctuaries. It's not just the rehoming and rescuing of these animals and the avoidance of the slaughter they were going to endure. It's the fact that we can now tell these stories and show to people, look, Daisy the cow is like this. Matilda the pig is like this. Eric the sheep is like this. And people can connect with and respond and empathize with these individuals and as a consequence recognize that there are other individuals who are very similar in the ways that matter morally who are still being exploited. Absolutely. And that's such an important point to make that that connection that people make with animals is the realization that animals are individuals like us with their own inner worlds, thoughts and feelings. They see the world that, like we do, some in in with a lot more color and in really complex and fascinating ways. It's really beautiful. I can't wait to visit. Yeah. Um, I'm going to get myself a little electric car at some point soon. I'm really excited to get it because I've never really wanted to get a car in London, yeah. but um, I'm really keen to get myself in a car this year, a little electric one, and go around the country and visit sanctuaries and get out of London a little bit more. So yeah. I'll definitely make sure I pay the sanctuary a visit. You definitely should. So just a couple of questions from our audience that came in. There's lots of random ones, but these these two were just sort of stand out to me. One person, so her, their name was X-I-A-X-X-X. Okay, and, yeah. they, and they said, I would love to see your book in Chinese. Is there any chance that it'll be translated? I really hope so. Um, so the publisher has translation rights. Mm -hmm. And so I think once it's been published here and we've had the run here and, and, and in the US as well, um, hopefully discussion will turn to translation because I would love for it to be translated into other European languages as well. But ultimately, yeah, I think yeah. getting into the Chinese market and, and you know, Spanish as well in South America and having people be able to read it in their native tongue, I think is very important. Yeah. So fingers crossed, although I can't 100% sure. confirm it currently. Next question was um, from Ida Miami, who says, would you ever go on the Joe Rogan podcast? If I was invited, yeah, I mean, I mean, definitely. There is a lot of interesting stuff that Joe and I could talk about, no mm -hmm. doubt. And so I definitely would if the invitation was ever put in front of me. Do you think you could ever convince him to go vegan? No, probably not. <laughs> I think there was a time where I maybe deluded myself into thinking that he wasn't as bad as he is when it comes to these issues. But I think especially in the past 18 months mm. or so, he showed himself to not be the sort of person that would probably make that mm. change. Yeah. Um, and he's become potentially more entrenched in his values. You know, he had James Wilkes on, the yeah. producer and uh, the, the guy in Game Changers, who, was, who just did phenomenally well on the Joe Rogan podcast. He 
obliterated Chris Cresser, the, the chiropractor who uh, likes to think he's an expert in all things mm. medicine related, but he obliterated him. I don't think Chris Cress has been back on the Joe Rogan podcast since, but even Joe himself was like, yeah, he made some really great points. Mm. And it feels to me like after that, he's almost become more entrenched in his views, that mm. he, he saw almost the vulnerability in his belief system mm. and his attitude he's towards needs. Yeah, he's doubled down, mm. I think. And I, so I'd love to have a crack at it, but I wouldn't necessarily be confident that I would be the, the catalyst for him changing, but maybe his audience, some if of them. Anyone who's listening knows Joe, please get Ed on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mr. Edward, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. What a pleasure to sit down with you again, my friend. Thank you so much, Robbie, for the great conversation. It's wonderful to, to see you again. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN podcast. We'll be back next time with more food, fashion, animals, technology, and everything in between.